Ready. Hello, class. This is your professor, Debbie. Welcome to True Crime University, where we have intellectual discussions about crime. This is a class for mature audiences with mature language. Our purpose is to learn about criminals, not glorify them. If you're new here, just one, two, let you know. What do you think of the new intro? My uh, <laughs> vice president of marketing didn't like the other one. So I changed it up a bit. Always trying to improve. Speaking of which, I have an announcement. I hate to do this, but you know that I have some chronic pain issues. I whine and complain about that a lot. And I figured out what it is. When I have multi-part episodes, I put them out all on one day. And I was looking through all my podcasts that I listen to, which is a lot. And everybody else does that. They put like part one out one week, part two the next week, and, and so forth. So I'm gonna have to go to that schedule and I hope nobody's bothered by it. It's it's hard on me physically. I won't get into it. I don't want to complain but well I'm disabled for a reason. Work is hard on my body. So yeah that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna uh, finish this up and this is gonna be the last Thursday that you'll have two episodes together. I'm sorry but let me know what you think of the new theme. If nobody likes it I'll, I'll go get find something else. Uh, it's from Audionautics. I went back to them with Jason Shaw. So thank you, Jason. I'm working on setting up Patreon. And my vice president, who's in charge of marketing, is looking into merch, merchandise. So be on the lookout for that soon. And um, what I might do is now that I have teeth, I think I sound better. This is actually the third microphone I've had since I started this. And the quality of them keeps getting better. And I have the new uh, homemade sound booth that I made. I might go back and redo old episodes that sound really bad. So, uh, you know, I might do that. So today we're going to finish talking about Carol and Doug. And I already told you that I wanted, even though there is a lot of information about their trial and, and so forth, I wanted to concentrate on the psychology so big trigger warning about child sexual abuse that's gonna be discussed and they're um they're disgusting they're disgusting people if you haven't figured that out by now when we this is like one of those before tv they would have radio soap operas and i think you would tune in they'd be like today we have you know our characters or whatever this mess that's what that reminds me of so today, when we tune in and we find Doug and Carol, where we last left off, Carol had made a suicide attempt and was taken home from the hospital by Jack. So on the night of August 1st, Carol went and got Teresa, and they all went trolling, going for girls. They picked one up, and um, I think most working girls, if they would see a child in the car, they would be like, um, excuse me, why is there a little girl here or something? But apparently this didn't bother them. I don't know. But anyway, Teresa watched as this one orally serviced Doug. So 
that night the three of them meaning carol dog and Teresa, went to bed and they had oral sex and oh my god so the next day august 2nd and this is according to carol and out of all the things in this story which is horrifying i find this to be the most unbelievable like the most what the fuck out of everything supposedly carol and Teresa went to a family counseling center in Burbank where Carol told told the counselor that the three of them were involved in a sexual relationship. So supposedly the counselor asked Teresa if she was bothered, to which she replied, not really. Then the counselor, who was a dude, supposedly said that it's, quote, not his job to moralize. End quote. And that, that as long as Teresa was okay with this, that this was okay. And I'm like, whoa, on what planet is this okay? Like, what kind of counselor or therapist or anybody would um, basically give the green light to this kind of behavior? I mean, what they should do. I know this was a long time ago. 1980 was 40 years ago. But still, they should have been on the phone to the police because this is child sexual abuse. I mean, this this part just blows my mind and it, it makes me wonder if the whole thing isn't a figment of Carol's imagination. Doug would give Teresa fancy underwear. I have a suspicion that some of it came from the victims and Carol would take Polaroids of Teresa and Doug with Doug wearing only a dog collar. One night they gave Teresa some wine and six little pills. I'm supposing some kind of barbiturate or tranquilizer, but anyway, she got drowsy, and Doug attempted to rape her, and she screamed, stop, you're hurting me, and he did stop, but he would keep pressuring her, and Teresa would keep saying no. So, Carol was now after Jack for sex, and he said that he wasn't interested unless there was another female involved. Nancy didn't want any part of this. Okay, this if this can, it gets even more disturbing. Carol said, how about Teresa? And Jack says, well, bring her to the van. So Carol brought Teresa to Jack in his van, and he fondled her, and he said to her, quote, what a nice little snatch you have end quote. And oh my god, that's revolting. That is so disgusting. He said that he wanted to have sex with Teresa. And Carol said, she's for Doug. Like, they're talking about her like she's just an item or somebody's property. And Teresa thought that Doug and Jack were so much alike. Just meaning, I mean, it, she, it doesn't come out and say this, but meaning disgusting pigs. Carol thought that sex with Doug and Teresa, like her dog and Teresa was wholesome and sweet. But if Teresa were to have sex with or be raped by, I guess is the better term, Jack, it would be disgusting. So on August 3rd, which is a Sunday night, Jack went to Little Nashville, the bar that he sang at. So Carol went to the bar and she goes up to Jack and said, you have to talk to me outside. And he comes out to her car. She shows him their kill bag you know, the thing that she made up with the paper towels and everything. And she said, quote, we're going out almost every night hunting, end quote. And she said she was afraid of Doug. She wanted Jack to hide her in the storage room at his apartment complex. 
he wouldn't. So they made arrangements to meet outside in Jack's van after the club closed. So Jack goes back in the club, and he told a couple of his friends that Carol was crazy, that she showed him guns, and said that Doug killed somebody, and she didn't know how to handle it. And he was so, I guess, shaken up is the word, that he flubbed a couple lines of a song that he was singing, which supposedly he never did. And somebody later recalled that he looked terrified. So Carol's thinking, and she's like, I blew it. I told Jack too much. At some point that night, she made the decision that Jack knew too much and that he would have to go. Apparently, her and Doug had already had this discussion about killing Jack. And Doug told her, don't do anything on your own. You're an amateur. To Carol, this was kind of a challenge. And she would put out various different stories about what happened next. But we know the basics of it. Jack came out to the van after the club closed. He drove with Carol inside and he parked along the street somewhere. He thought they were going to have sex. So he goes in the back, the back seat, and he starts to undress. And Carol gets in the back expecting that she's going to kill him. And she has these rubber gloves and a knife in her purse and her gun in her pants. Jack then asked her to bring Teresa over again. And Carol later said, and this is, okay, it's a self-serving statement, but this is what she said. She said that, that this was the moment she knew that he had to die. So, this is disgusting. Well, this whole thing's disgusting. Who am I kidding? Apparently, Jack liked his asshole played with. So, Carol said, turn over and I'll play with your ass. So, he did. So, he's laying, like, face down on the seat of the van. And she shot him in the head. So she felt, and he still had a pulse, so she shot him again. She said when she did this, she felt a surge of power go through her. Then she stabbed him in the back six times, and she slashed at, like, like took actual hunks of skin off of his ass to make it look like a psycho murder. They're, they're still in this thing about, let's make this look like a crazy person is killing people. And then she had the thought, oh no, they'll identify the bullets in his head. You know, identify, match them to the other people that Doug had killed. So her solution to that was to cut off his head. Three o'clock in the morning, she finishes her work. She has his head in a bag. She goes to a pay phone called Doug. And she says, quote, I've got Jack. I've got Jack's head in the bag. I killed him, end quote. And Doug says, what are you going to do? Carol says, well, what do you want me to do? Doug says, come home. So she was kind of proud of herself that she killed Jack all by herself. She cut his head off. The head was, she was carrying around like a trophy. She goes home to the, the apartment that they're sharing to find an ambulance there. And she's like, oh, what's going on here? Now, Nancy, Doug's friend, had been there. And apparently she was epileptic and, and she had a seizure. So... The next day, when she went to Illinois, I don't know if she was from there originally, but Carol said that she always suspected that Nancy had happened to pick up the extension phone when her and Carol were talking about killing Jack. So Nancy's tired, and she goes to bed, and Doug's like, where's the head? Carol said it's in the car. So they wrap it some more in a blanket, they drive off, and they find it, they find a, gar a garbage can somewhere near Griffith Park. They put Jack's head in there. 
I have no knowledge that it was ever found. There's no mention that anybody ever found this. And they discussed their situation, you know, getting caught. And Doug, who had voted to restore the death penalty in California, I guess that was up for, for voters to vote on recently. Doug was a Republican, which, which is extremely ironic, you know, that he voted to restore the death penalty. And he said he didn't want to die. And Carol said, well, I don't think those girls wanted to die either. And Doug said, that doesn't matter. They're disposable. Now, on Wednesday, Carol went back to work. And she was all jumpy and, you know, kind of paranoid. Jeanette, Jack's wife, files a missing persons report when he doesn't come home after a couple days. The street that they had parked the van on, or Jack had parked a van on, was called Barbara Ann Street. And the van's sitting out there for a few days, and the residents noticed that starting to stink. So they called the police. And the police come and a detective named Detective Peta finds a body on the floor of the van. Still had his boots on, his pants were around his ankles. Where there was supposed to be a head, there was a bloody pillow. And there was a 25 caliber shell casing in the van. Apparently Carol didn't think about the casing. Detective Peta could tell from the state of undress that he'd been in the middle of a sex act and he suspected that the killer was a female. And apparently, he knew that Jack had a reputation as a womanizer. Carol, in the meantime, is in the shower. Somebody knocks on her door. It's the Van Nice police. Imagine that. So they took her down to the station. Doug follows her. And while Carol is talking to the police, Doug is talking to the police on his own. Apparently they had agreed on an alibi of the night that Jack was killed. They had supposedly been in bed together the whole night. The police noted that their alibis contradicted each other. They don't realize this until later when they compare notes. So the next day Carol goes to work and she's acting really weird. Well, weirder than usual. Nervous and depressed. And there's a couple other nurses sitting there and Carol's standing in the doorway and she just starts yapping. Just like this non-stop monologue about her ex-boyfriend was dead and her boyfriend Doug had killed a lot of girls and at first everybody's just trying to ignore her thinking oh god there's, there goes weird Carol with her weird stories again and then they started to pay attention to her she pretty much admitted that she had been involved in these murders with Doug so she turns around she's like I can't take it anymore I'm going to turn myself in so the nurses call the police, and they come, but they missed her. Carol was gone. She went home, gathered evidence, like the clothes and stuff, and she this is she keeps trying to call the police, but she keeps calling the wrong place, and she's calling all these different places. Eventually, she gets Detective Kilgore Northeast, and she told him what was going on. And he said, well, why do you want to turn Doug in now? And she said, quote, Oh, for quite a hell of a long time, he's been treating me like shit. It's been worse and worse and worse. And now I've done one on my own. Done one completely on my own, and he's falling apart over it. I'm just plain sick of it, end quote. She told about killing Jack and decapitating him. And Detective Kilgore said, well, do you feel bad? And Carol said, quote, the honest truth is it's fun to kill people. And if I was allowed to run loose, I'd probably do it again. I have to say, I know it's going to sound sick. 
It's going to sound psycho, and I really don't think that I'm psycho, but it's kind of fun, like riding a roller coaster. Not the killing, not the action that somebody died, because we didn't kill them in a way that hurt them, end quote. She wouldn't give Doug's name. She said, uh, let him leave work, work, you know, let him finish work. This is kind of funny, but it's typical Carol. She made arrangements to meet this detective at the gristmill for lunch. She thinks, you know, that they're just going to go have a nice lunch, talk about the murders, but they have other ideas. Four Van Nice police come to the door, and this was prompted by the call from her co-workers. Remember, they came to the hospital, and you know, she'd gone. So Doug calls Detective Peta to retract his alibi. He realized that, that he fucked up. And Detective Peta says, well, I'm going to come down to the Jurgens plant to talk to you. So when he gets there, Doug comes over and shakes his hand, and uh, Detective Peta puts the handcuffs on him. So as she's leaving with the police, Carol gets, like, all the victims' clothes, the photo album of Doug and Teresa, which will be, like, a monumental piece of evidence. And she goes, I killed Jack all by, my, all by myself because he was a real asshole and deserved to die. And she kept saying she didn't know if she wanted to talk or not or she should wait for a lawyer. But Carol, you know Carol, she just could not keep quiet. She talked about Teresa, who she called a plump little darling. And wow, okay, hold on to your seats for this one. She told one of the detectives, quote, You look incredibly like Doug, and you smile just like him. And I hate to tell you this, but I'm having, what's the way to say this? Clitoral spasms. You know, it's going to be a long time before I get a man again. End quote. What the fuck? <laughs> Seriously? And I don't know if this guy managed to keep a straight face. I don't think I could. I don't know how he reacted, but the other, <laughs> the other cops were all teasing him. And Carol said, this is regarding the murders, quote, now that I've done it, it was really kind of interesting. It sure as hell not like going to the beach or barbecuing, end quote. Now, Carol's being questioned by one set of detectives and Doug is being questioned by another. And the main detective, and he was involved in the, um, what they call the Sunset Strip cases, you know, the, the girls. His name was Leroy Orozco. He didn't like Doug. And well, who does, I guess. He smirked. He was cocky. He had an attitude. He thought he could outsmart everybody. And um, before he starts talking, he goes, I'm going to need some smokes, like a command. Well, somebody got him cigarettes. This is back in the day when, like, everybody smoked. He talked for three and a half hours. And he kept saying that his and Carol's relationship was platonic. He had admitted that there was bad blood between him and Jack. He was asked did he ever pick up a prostitute, and he said, quote, I pick up hookers, yeah. And then I like this quote. This is really telling. I don't know what the, the question was, if there was one, or, but he goes, I'm well read. I've read everything Bugliosi ever wrote. And he's referring to Vincent Bugliosi. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. I've heard it called um, Bugliosi. I'm sorry if I'm messing up his name. He wrote Helder Skelter. And as most people probably know, that's the famous book. That's the account of the Manson family murders. 
And remember back when he had the idea of blaming the crimes on a black person and Carol was supposed to get the black woman's pubic hair? And I made some kind of comment about, you know, he must have read about the Manson murders. Maybe he, that's where he got that idea. At that time, I didn't realize that he actually had read that book. So now I totally think that that's where he got that idea from. So they're, they're talking to, they're trying to connect him to the victims. They're asking him, do you know any of these girls? They're showing him pictures of this one, pictures of that one. He admitted to knowing Cindy Chandler, but he wouldn't admit to knowing or recognizing any of the other, any of the other ones. So then he says, quote, I'm under arrest for this, not Jack Murray. Hmm, that's really goofy, end quote. So then they asked him, what's the youngest girl that he has had sex with as an adult? So he hung his head and he said, quote, that's something I'm ashamed of, but it's nothing to do with any of this, end quote. He learned that they had the photo album of Teresa and he said, quote, that was a case of fucking seduction you wouldn't believe. We were resisting it completely. She was grab-assing on me and Carol constantly, end quote. Now, you see what he just did? I mentioned it earlier, but those are his exact words. He said that Teresa came on to him and Carol. And remember I told you that that's how pedophiles think. They always blame the victim or the child for initiating the contact. And other people know that that's nuts, right? Because a child cannot seduce. But in their mind, that's how they see it. He went on to describe Teresa as sexually adjusted, but trapped in a 12-year-old body. I guess she'd turned 12 by now. He called her a conniving little bitch. And when he realized that Carol gave them the photo album, he said, quote, somebody is trying to lynch my ass, end quote. Then they go, the police go to the Verdugo Street apartment. They find two pairs of handcuffs, 29 live rounds of 25 caliber ammunition, stained clothes and carpet fibers, two shotguns. Remember his crazy plan of shooting up the bar and he got two shotguns? Yeah. Pals of porn and bondage magazines in with good housekeeping magazines and a newspaper that was open to the story about Exe Wilson's head being found in the box. They also found a textbook with a picture of a severed penis in the mouth of somebody's head. And that one is the most bizarre to me. I have a lot of textbooks. Obviously, I went to graduate school and, um, you know, I have textbooks on all kinds of things, profiling and a lot of my textbooks have pictures of murder victims and such, but I do not have any textbooks with pictures like that. And I'm dying to know what kind of textbook this was. So they booked Doug on felony child molestation charges. And that's commonly what the police do is they'll charge you with something lesser or something that's easier to prove while they're working on proving the murder or, you know, the, um, the heavier charges. Three detectives took Carol out to recreate the drive with Doug, or drives with Doug, where he showed where bodies were dumped. And on August 26th, they find the victim that gave her name is Kathy. So what this means for their body count is there's actually another victim in here that's not counted for. There's still a Jane Doe who's not Kathy, 
who's unidentified. Nobody has any idea who, who she was. Somebody that the thug picked up by himself and never admitted to or discussed. So there's still an unknown victim in addition to Kathy. They went and interviewed Teresa and she showed them all the gifts that Doug had given her. They went to Doug's rental garage. Remember, that's where he took Gina and Cindy. They saw the brownish marks, which was the blood stains on the floor, and they could tell that they were like drag marks because remember, they were bleeding and he dragged them out of the car. They ended at a clean square outline, which looked like a mattress had been there, which we know that there was. So at the Jurgens plant where Doug worked, um, a boiler operator stumbled and I think he was going up the steps or something and his hand landed on a brick and a power fluid and it dislodged a hiding space. Talk about lucky. And in this little hiding space was a cosmetic bag with the two guns and ballistics test would later link those or link one of them to all but Jack's murder, meaning the other one we know Carol did with her gun. So now Doug has the idea that he's going to blame the Sunset Strip murders on Carol and Jack. And this is really convenient because Jack's dead and can't defend himself. I just want to add this little incident because it's it's a little comic relief and it's so pathetic and it, it's so Carol. They're at the apartment. Carol wants to change her clothes and they said, well, we have to leave the door open. They can't leave her alone in a locked room, closed room. Maybe she'll run out the window or something. And Carol said to the male officer, why don't you come in? He said, no, come on, Carol, get your clothes. And she goes, quote, close the door. Let's have dessert. It's the last time I'm going to be with a man. I won't tell anyone, end quote. And all the cops who were waiting outside the bedroom all go in a chorus. No, Carol. So I'm not going to get into too much detail about their trials. But basically what happened is Doug was such a pain in the ass. He wanted to represent himself, which is called pro per. And that's Latin for in propria personae. It means literally in their own person. So he kept irritating his lawyers and his judges, driving everybody crazy because, you know, he was such an asshole. That's just the, just the way he is. Finally, the judge said, okay, you can be your own attorney. Supposedly, he loved the attention, which, of course, knowing Doug, that makes sense. Veteran court watchers thought that he was actually pretty decent as his own attorney. One of the more amusing exchanges during his trial, he claimed for some reason that he tried to get Carol to leave the apartment by, quote, just being an obnoxious person, end quote. And Carol's attorney said to him, rather difficult for you to do. And then he, before he was his own attorney, he was complaining about his attorney that he was given. He didn't like him. And he told the judge, quote, he's a dump truck. He comes in here, looks like he rolled out of Main Street Mission with his hair sticking out everywhere, end quote. Then he claimed he was being railroaded. Carol was a prosecution witness, and she had use immunity. What that means is if she told the truth, it could not be used against her at her own trial. A couple of the things she said in court are worth noting. One of them is, quote, Mr. Clark had virtual total control over my personality and my behavior, my wants, my desires, my dreams while I was with him, end quote. And that's 
pretty much sums up everything right there. And this one is even more, I think, of a uh, more true. Tells you what's going on. She said, quote, It was his personality or traits of his personality that blended with traits of my personality that was responsible for the situation, end quote, meaning the murders. And that totally summed it up right there. She said she was a masochist who fantasized about humiliation and pain. And we know how, we've seen how dog treated her like shit, basically. Um, bringing other women in and having sex with other women while she was right there. And she just sat there and didn't even complain or um, just accepted it. This was how desperate she was to be loved or for some attention. And it's just so disturbing, the level that this went to. Doug's attorney said, quote, there's a well-known psychiatric diagnosis known as folly adieu, which means that when two people get together who are mentally unbalanced, the two of them just make each other worse by reason of their unfortunate condition, end quote. And he's right, he was right on the nose also. To go a little bit deeper with that, this is not in my dissertation, but I recently came up with this one. This is just my own thought. It's not anybody's, you know, from any sociologist or criminologist. This is just from my own head. Did you ever hear of the saying, the beast with two backs? It's refers to two people having sex. Think about it for a minute. Um, I don't think that's, that's going to stretch your imagination or your brain too much to imagine where the name for that comes from. The person who coined that term was actually Shakespeare. And it comes from Othello. Now, love me some Shakespeare. Anyway, it's a figurative term, and it means the beast, meaning one. Like one being, you know, two people are connected, and they now form one being. But if you take that step, that one step further, and you put two people in a situation where they're not doing something pleasant, but they're killing somebody... And if you can stretch this out a little bit and imagine that each part of their personality splits off a little bit and now you have another distinct personality. Are you with me? I wish I had a blackboard. I wish this was visual. I would draw this. But it, I guess it's kind of like folia de, but it's just taking a little bit further. When you're with somebody and you're doing something, and I, I'm just using their example of Carol and Doug but you're doing an activity that you wouldn't normally do by yourself, I think you can say, and we can't really be exclusive with this because we know that Doug did and was totally capable of killing by himself. But there are many cases that I've read about and some are in my dissertation where the people involved were not capable of killing by themselves. But say you have Carol and you have Doug and you have them together and their personalities form a Carol Doug or a Doug Carol, um, then that personality is the is different, a little bit different than the separate personalities. It, do I sound crazy? Because a lot of times I just sound crazy, like I'm rambling. And I kind of am, but I'm, I'm also trying to get across a point, and I just don't know if I'm doing that good of a job at it. But um, I'm in no way saying that they're not to blame. Please don't look at it that way. I'm just trying to explain the, the psychological uh, workings of the minds of two people, or maybe three, but I think it's definitely with two, 
who get together and do something that's, I guess you would say, out of their comfort zone or out of their normal behavior. Now, throughout his trial, which was about three months long, long trial, the judge was totally out of control. At one point, he said to the judge, quote, you are an asshole. You know that? You push a man just so far. You ought to be defending parking tickets in Tijuana, end quote. So they bring out manacles, you know, the leg chains, and Doug goes, quote, what's this bullshit having me brought out here in manacles, you asshole, end quote. So the judge goes, all right, gag him, sit him in the chair, gag him. The bailiffs are literally tying Doug into a chair in the courtroom, and before he get they have this like leather it's like a ball gag like a bdsm type of thing but it's just something that covers his mouth so that you can't hear his yap while they're doing this he gets out these various things he calls the judge a sleazy cocksucker tijuana taxi driver and gutless worm and if you're wondering about all the references to tijuana the judge is named judge torres i'm guessing he's of Hispanic descent. So, I mean, we know, we know, already know Doug's a racist. So, you know, we expect from him. So they gag him, right, with this leather strap. And then he starts kicking over tables in the courtroom. And the judge is like, get him out of here. So the bailiffs pick him up. And Doug's a fat fuck. He weighs, I mean, he's tall and he weighs over 200 pounds. So this was probably no easy task. While they're picking him up and moving him, you hear him muffled through the the leather shop say, fuck you, judge. Finally, the jury gets to deliberate. Guess how long they deliberate for? Five days. You thought I was going to say five minutes, didn't you? When they took their initial vote, there were two who voted for acquittal. And I wanted to, like, go back in time and knock their heads together. Like, what is wrong with you people? Were you paying attention did did you not hear him? And to be fair, I don't know if a lot of this behavior, maybe the jury was removed for some reason. Maybe they didn't see this. But still, I'm, I'm sure people thought that about OJ and Casey Anthony too. So I don't know what these people were thinking. But it doesn't matter because eventually they decided that he was guilty on six counts of murder and one count of attempted murder, and that will be Charlene, the very first attack that was mentioned. He got the death penalty, which was to be the gas chamber, and I don't believe they have the gas chamber anymore. On May 2nd of 1983, Carol's trial was to start. She planned to plead NGRI, which is not guilty by reason of insanity. She withdrew her plea and pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. That will be Jack and the Jane Doe known as Kathy. She was sentenced to two consecutive, that means one on top of each other, 25-year-to-life sentences. Her first parole date would have been 2012. And I say would have been because she died in prison on December 9th of 2003 at the age of 61. Doug is still on death row, and he still maintains his innocence. He still claims that Jack Murray and Carol committed the Sunset Strip murders. And what's even crazier is that a lot of people actually believe him. I can't figure out why. He, like so many um, wackos on death row, get married. 
and he married a woman named Kelly. I don't know if they're still married. Um, one time Kelly was on the Geraldo talk show, you know, Geraldo Rivera, and she said that she thinks Jack was the real killer. Doug told his sister that he's found God. Now, as far as some of the other people in this drama, in 1990, Doug sent Teresa, remember her, 22nd birthday card. And in it, he writes, and this is so disgusting, quote, I know it sounds totally absurd to say, but I fell in love with an 11-year-old girl. I ached inside. If you had been 18, I'd have asked you to marry me in a minute, end quote. Teresa asked about being put in a witness protection program. She worked on a sex call-in line. I don't even know if they have them anymore, but you would see them advertised on TV, like 1-800, I don't know, get laid or whatever they were. And you would be connected to somebody who would talk dirty to you. And if one of her clients would mention children or pedophilia, she would scream at them and tell them to get help. She tried therapy, but I, I guess didn't help her. She found her own peer counseling group, which is great to hear. She supposedly keeps or did keep a knife in her car to protect herself. And I feel so bad for her. She'd be my age now. She'd be an adult. I don't even know if Teresa's her real name, but I hope, I wish she had like a GoFundMe or a PayPal. It's like, I just want to buy her something. I don't like flowers or candy or I, I just reading about what she went through with these two assholes and Jack. Okay, three assholes was, I mean, it. my heart aches for her. So three days after Carol pled guilty, her ex-husband Grant, that was the last one, number three, and the father of her kids. He was 46. He was found dead, had overdosed on pills. He had lung cancer and Parkinson's. So he was, I guess you could call him terminally ill. Her kids, Chris and Spike, went from home to home. They were unfortunately abused. They came to see her in 1987 in prison when they were 16 and 13. I don't know what happened to Spike, but Chris went to the army and to the war in Saudi Arabia. So hopefully they turned out okay. I'm almost done. Well, I mean, if, if you would have got bored, obviously you would have turned me off already. So I guess I don't have to apologize. And I would never know. Carol and Doug were both evaluated by mental health experts in jail. And personality tests on Carol showed that she was, quote, a woman of poor social judgment, unable to profit from experience, and had an insecurity and exaggerated need for attention, end quote. The psychiatrist saw her behavior during Jack's murder as, quote, an explosion of anger, frustration, and resentment over being used, abused, then rejected by Jack at a moment when she was asking for his help, end quote. They said that Carol tend to project blame for her circumstances onto others and seem to desperately want to see herself in terms of an ideal self. Attractive, sensitive, good, compassionate, naive, unsophisticated, and untouched. Despite all of this, she was not qualified for an insanity or diminished capacity defense. A psychiatrist named Dr. Sharma said that Carol had become desensitized to violence during her relationship with Doug, and her involvement in the killing stemmed from an unusual, quote, psychopathic need and sexual deviation, end quote. 
and he believed that Carol's murderous behavior could be a reenactment of the trauma that she had experienced in her childhood, a repetition compulsion in which the trauma is continually acted out in an attempt to negate it or understand it. And I said that earlier, remember I said about um, how she kept going from abusive relationship to abusive relationship. That's how she was brought up. Remember, her father molested her and her mother just came out and said, go away, I don't want you. So Carol kept probably subconsciously putting herself in these situations where she kept being victimized again and again by men. And her neediness was so great that it overshadowed any knowledge of right and wrong. Like her moral compass was so destroyed that to teach the compass analogy, you know, it points out north, south, whatever, and it's always the same. It would be like taking a compass to, I don't even know, somewhere where there's some kind of magnetic ab abnormality and it like spins around, it's going nuts. That's what Carol's moral compass was like. It's like she didn't know north from south. She didn't know right from wrong. She just had lost her ability to self-regulate, taking back to something we learned earlier, her ability to separate herself from Doug. It's like she had totally leached onto him psychically. Like she was not able to separate her personality from his. And this became very dangerous for her. Dr. Gloria Keyes, a psychiatrist, diagnosed Doug with a personality disorder, which uh, that's what I read, but that's like um, very generic. A number of psychosexual disorders and shared paranoia, the, the folia de. She testified that he was a psychopath with a narcissistic personality, which, quote, manifested itself in grandiosity, putting other people down, and having a shallow capacity for relating to others, end quote. He also was a paraphiliac. He responded to, quote, a constellation of deviant sexual preferences, including fetishism, end quote. And a paraphilia, if you remember, is a sexual condition that's characterized by some kind of extreme behavior or desire. They're most, most commonly that seen in men. And some of them, some of the common ones are exhibitionism, voyeurism, fetishes, like you'll see a lot of foot fetishes, shoe fetishes. Doug had some of the more dangerous ones like necrophilia, you know, the, the sexual activity that he had with the corpses. Remember Axie Wilson's head? I think that's probably when a lot of people think of this case, Doug in the shower with Axie's head is kind of like the main image that is associated with this. Cindy and Gina, the, Gina, the stepsisters, um, he raped both of them after he, he killed them. Yeah, that's necrophilia. And unfortunately, we saw pedophilia. Now, I have a theory about why Doug liked to take Teresa to pick up girls with him. I think that he couldn't get excited and perform unless Teresa was there. I think that it wasn't the adult female there that was exciting him. I think it was the presence of Teresa. So, um, yeah, he is one sick fuck. He was kind of like Albert Fish. Remember, he had like every sexual diagnosis and paraphilia that they'd ever seen. This was, what, 1929 or something? 
I think Doug could give Albert a run for his money. He wasn't a masochist like Albert Fish. He didn't stick needle needles in himself and spag himself. But Doug was more of a sadist, and he liked to humiliate people, either psychologically or physically or, or whatever. Um, he treated everybody like shit, not just Carol. But, I mean, look at the way he talked to the judge. I mean, who says out loud to the judge in court, you're an asshole? I mean, um, even I've never seen anybody act that way in court. He was an extreme narcissist. I think we already know that. He thought he was better than everybody, charming. He was smarter than everybody. He could get away with stuff. You know, he gave himself the nickname King of the One Night Stand, which is so gross. He, um, you know, he thought very highly of himself. And of course, it's pretty obvious or it should be pretty obvious that he was a stone cold psychopath. Next week, I actually have a request. A listener has requested a topic and I found a good case for that topic. So I would like to dedicate these episodes to Marnette Comer, Cindy Chandler, Gina Morano, Exie Wilson, Karen Jones, Kathy, Jane Doe, Jack Murray, and Teresa. Class dismissed.